As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Michael, we're going to be tackling a couple more workplace confessions today. And while some of these confessions have been a lot of fun, others are, well, more serious. That's true. They, I don't know, they really run the gamut. Yeah. Well, today, I think we're going to get a taste of the more serious variety. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Like there's, for instance, there's one. um, Well, I'll kind of give you a a hint at it right now. I mean, it's like, what do you do when you're making $800,000, but you're just apathetic at work? You know, it's just hard to get up in the morning and get excited to, you know, open up the old laptop. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, that's that's a really tough one. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was joking, but we're going to hear a little bit more about that confession okay. and a whole lot more in this episode of Rocketship.fm. we got two more workplace confessions. You're not going to want to miss out on these, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So, 800,000, but you just can't open the laptop to enjoy your work. That's that's the confession? Th- that is one of the confessions, but we're going to save that one for the end. Okay. So, more on that in a little bit. Of course. Okay, well... What's the first confession we're going to go through then? Okay. Actually, this one, uh, it's a serious one, but also a little bit entertaining too. So it shows the lengths that some people would go to actually get taken seriously. Ah, okay. All right. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued on this one. (laughs) Well, good. Yeah. I'm going to call this confession my invisible agent. And as always, we have voice actors portraying the confession. So here it is my invisible agent. I know this sounds sketchy, but does anyone use a fake assistant for freelance work? I'm a young female designer, and I recently started picking up some bigger freelance gigs. And I hate the idea that the clients aren't taking me seriously. When I start discussing prices, I feel like I'm constantly having my rate negotiated down because I can't be seen as too aggressive. 
I still have to work with them once the contract is signed. If I had, say, a male assistant or agent who was a bit more straightforward and headstrong, would clients take me more seriously and be more willing to pay what I deserve? Any thoughts, advice, or hitting gotchas? Am I just overthinking this? Okay, that's an interesting one. It does sound a little, I don't know, out there. Having a secret fake agent doing your bidding under a pseudonym, but... I don't know. There's a reason she's making this confession. I, I kind of understand it. For sure. For sure. I mean, she feels like she's not getting taken seriously. But if she had, oh, you know, a male name listed on the email, yeah. maybe it would be different. At least I think that's what she's wondering. Yeah, it's an interesting confession for sure. And we actually have a very special guest to dissect this one with us today, don't we? We sure do. We have Helen Tran with us. Ah, uh, Helen Tran is she's awesome. Uh, she's an entrepreneur. A designer, and she's actually in Canada, just like me these days. Yeah, Helen Tran, a CEO and founder of Jupiter, but she spent time at Shopify as a product lead, and team actually grew tenfold while she was there. Uh, but she's been a product design consultant, freelancing on her own for other organizations. And if people have been to design conferences or listened to design-oriented podcasts, I'm sure you've already learned from Helen. She's definitely somebody that a lot of people look up to. Yeah, she's great. And actually a great person to run this confession by. So let's hear from Helen and get her take on this one. What I thought was really interesting about what this person wrote was they said, if I had, say, a male assistant who was more straightforward and headstrong, which I think in their mind means that they can act that way which is an mm -hmm. implicit vote of confidence for themselves. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Which, which is really just an acknowledgement that they're able to do this. So now my next question is like, if you're able to do this and pretend to be this, why can't you just be this? Mm. And it's not, it's not to be dismissive of, yes, I understand the gender dynamics. Trust me, I've dealt with that my whole life. But I think if you're this close, to believing you could pretend to be this man. Let's call him Steve. <laughs> you could pretend to be Steve. Uh, what if you just be Steve, but with your name? And, and would that change things? Is this a mentality thing? Because I think part of your rate being negotiated down is because you're allowing it to happen. And you'll be surprised what happens when you say no. And if you do say no, are you willing to accept the consequence of that and maybe open your way up to a client that would say yes? Yeah. Uh, so that's that's my question there. So if you go to them and say like, hey, my my hourly rate is $200 an hour and they're like, mm, you know what? Like maybe like 150, okay. Move the conversation away from the rate. Try to talk about your duties and try to cut down on the work, but keep the rate. Yeah. So you're like, no, this is my rate. This is what I worked out. However, would you be willing to look at my duties and roles and reduce that to fit your budget? That may be a really great way for you to keep the best of both worlds. So you're keeping your rate. You do take a hit on hours, maybe, but there's an underlying respect that your client is giving you. Have you ever been in the situation? It felt like there was some trepidation around the negotiation and then going into the work. Like you have to switch hats, right? From negotiator into service oriented. And it sounded like there was some trepidation in, in having that kind of like boldness in the negotiation, but then being able to be a friendly contractor once hired. Did you have any, any thoughts around transitioning that as a freelancer? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> Sorry, this is such a complex question. And whenever I think about this, I'm like, yeah, I understand the whole di friendly dynamic and the whole, but I think people trip themselves up. Um, like, like, I feel like that question is almost like forcing like a binary answer. It's like, yes, I'm going to choose to be friendly or I'm going to choose to be profitable. Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if that's, if that's a thing. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that's like a choice that you have to make. So I argued with this with a past colleague. Actually, this reminds me, um, you know, that maxim that says, uh, if you love it, you'll do it for free or whatever mm. bullshit they tell you. So here's the thing. If I love it, I must be doing it really well. Right. This is the implicit thing with that. And that's what you're paying me for. I've worked with a lot of people who don't love what they're doing. And you can feel it. You can feel their energy when they come in. You can feel it in the outcome of their work. And really, like, in my opinion, if I love it, you should actually pay me more. Yeah. Because I'm going to care way more. I'm going to care more than you. I'm going to care more than, like, anyone that you're ever going to hire. I'm going to care the shit out of this. Right. Um, so that's really what you're paying me for. If you really do want something crappy, then maybe you can't afford it. Yeah. And, and it's not to say you can't you can't negotiate in a friendly way. <laughs> you know, you can yeah. be friendly and tell them you're worth more than what they're asking to pay you, right? Yeah. I mean, a, a sense of humor is really is it really goes a really long way. And sometimes you can really like tug on things a little bit more aggressively than you think, and give it a try, like. I think in your mind, you have to, this is really ridiculous to say, but you kind of have to believe that they want the same thing you do. Right. <laughs> you have to believe that they also want a good outcome to this project, that they also want to hire the best professional, that they also like, and not negotiate from this perspective of scarcity. Like, oh, I'm not gonna ever meet another client again. I'm not ever gonna be able to charge this again. And I know that is like, they're just words in the sky for a lot of people, but I think once you really do believe that approach, that changed it for me. And you know, the worst they can say is no, but it shouldn't be you saying no to yourself. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Before the break, we heard our first confession of this episode, and we got to hear from Helen Tran with her take on it. We've got one more confession to go through, though. Ah, the sad story of the person who makes $800,000, but just can't find the motivation to do their work. Yeah, and hey, to whoever made this confession, we might be making light of things, but there are probably others in your situation, too. It's just admittedly a little hard for us to relate but hey that's okay hey yeah let's um let's let's hear the confession though right Let, let's hear them out we're calling this one my golden handcuffs i've been golden handcuffed i'm making eight hundred thousand dollars a year at a big company but i feel completely apathetic the people are really nice and i'm not really unhappy i'm just bored out of my mind i came from a startup that was acquired and the pace of the work is just vastly different there are too many meetings with no outcomes, and months and months go by with no real progress made, and everyone seems fine with it. I've recently been recruited by a much smaller company that I'm excited about. The vision really resonates with me, but my compensation would be significantly less than I'm making today. Less than a quarter, honestly. I kind of want to take the job to experience the excitement of a small company again, but I realized that the opportunity to earn my salary today may not come again. What would you guys do? So this person 
they have two choices. Stay unhappy in this $800,000 a year job or go with the smaller company and make, you know, just a measly $200,000. All right. I mean, hey, it is a choice that one has to make. Yeah. Let's uh, let's get Helen's take on this one. Let's just pretend you are like a middle class person and you're like, I'm making $800,000 a year. This person wrote three paragraphs and I feel like they already know what they want to do. Mm. So... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Like this person already said, I'm bored out of my mind and I have too many meetings with no outcomes, no real progress. And everyone seems fine with it. Okay. So that's like a whole paragraph about unhappiness. And then they follow it up with like, I could be happier somewhere else, (laughs) but like, it really resonates with me. Excited about vision, excitement. Like if I could just like word count like like, like just show them like i don't know i'm of the person that's like aside from any big monetary problems like like you have to deal with a family and all of that stuff like go for it like you don't know if you're gonna die like i know this is like kind of lame to say but like walter Mitty whole thing like you you can you only live for so long and this jump from like two hundred thousand to eight hundred thousand it's like are you really doing something with Here's my question. Are you really doing something with the 600,000? Are you significantly spending that money so it is really changing your life? At like are you buying like three yachts every day? Like is that what's happening? Like do you need to maintain your fleet of yachts? Like this is my question. It's like you're talking about this like huge gap in compensation, which is fine if your lifestyle needs that compensation. But if your lifestyle doesn't need that compensation, then we're talking about your sense of fulfillment about your life and your happiness and all of these other nebulous things that no one can answer for you. So if you're, if you don't want or need, if you don't need the 600,000 and if you're not particularly spending 600,000 more dollars to make yourself happy in other ways, then I don't see how money is actually related to those questions. It's like, hey, there might be certain situations where you do have a certain financial goal that's for a very specific reason that you want to hit. And so you make a decision to try to get yourself to accomplish that goal. Um, But if this person's been at this company and has been making this amount of money, (laughs) chances are they probably hit a fine, that financial goal, whatever it might be. So it's like, yeah. And and I, I've read uh, that there was a study before where it's like, forget what amount exactly where it's like $75,000 or something like that, where it's like, once you go up that after that threshold, the happiness, it's like, there is a correlation between happiness and money, but only to a certain point. And once you get past that point, it sort of doesn't go up the way you think it does. Wait a minute. I was sent a study by my financial advisor also, maybe he's has he's a little bit biased, <laughs> but the study was basically saying that that study was completely misinterpreted. I wouldn't be surprised if that okay. was true, too. <laughs> there is a correlation between fulfillment. So apparently what was wrong with that study was the way they measured happiness was very like shallow. Mm. And so they were looking at like a few points and they're like, OK, this is happiness. And so they're they're right in the sense that it does it does like check off your like survival stuff. Um, but if you're going to try to convince someone that making 200 K is better, is worse than making like 150, that's probably not so true. Like there's some freedom that the extra 50 yeah. K gives you, sure. which is why, yeah. I, which is why I said, like, if you genuinely think you spend that $600,000 Delta very well, 
and it gives you that fulfillment. Yeah. I mean, if you're writing into us about being miserable, you're probably not spending that wisely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna stay that eight hundred thousand um, dollar job, I think you should blow that eight hundred thousand dollar job. <laughs> as much money as you, as much happiness as you can. And the other thing I'll say is, if this is an exciting startup that they're at least in a position to pay two hundred k, and you think you'd be really good at this. Chances are you'll be able to increase, you know, this isn't like a finite number you'd make forever. Like two, oh, yeah. 200K, that could turn into 400K, turn into 600. So it's like, I don't think you need to think of this as like being a, this is the amount I would make forever. I mean, for most people, that'd be an amazing amount, by the way. But for this person, if they, I know they want to maximize their income, there's nothing to say you can't maximize your income doing something really cool too. Yeah. Can I also bring up like a little bit of a serious note? Like this person is, Maybe there's a little bit of an external influence there. Mm. Maybe. Absolutely. I think some people, when they think about this, they're like, some people would think it like roll their eyes at me and be like, why would you give up this job? Because mm. it's giving you so much income. No one would ever have this opportunity. So why are you giving it up? And I think there's a little bit of a guilt, internal guilt with turning this down. Um, but no one said you need to like run around talking about your salary and like, this is just you and try not to think too much about what other people think like this is your life and maybe you do feel a little bit of guilt about it but you can keep that guilt quietly bottled up <laughs> bottled up <laughs> and, and deal with it later like everyone else does <laughs> welcome to being an adult damn it <laughs> we will be right back after a word from our sponsors Okay, we have two more confessions in the books, and that last one might have seemed wild to some. I mean, I don't know. I've never had to worry about stepping away from an $800,000 a year job uh, because I was feeling a little apathetic, but hey, it's a it's an issue for some people out there, staying in a place where the money's good, but you're just not feeling it. Absolutely. So yeah, actually, there's a lot to learn from both of these confessions. We finish these episodes with one big takeaway from each of us. And I'll actually start with that last confession. Let's forget about the number for a minute, right? 800,000 sounds like a lot of money, but hey, to some, 80,000 is a lot of money. So whatever amount it is, if you're in a situation where you're just not happy, you do have choices to make. And hey, staying in that job and saving money so you can take care of your family, retire sooner, that's not necessarily a wrong choice. Leaving that job and finding another that will make you happier, that's not necessarily a wrong choice either. To me, the takeaway is you need to at least accept that you do have options and choices here. And once you make a choice, just own it. Right. Maybe there's a way to make things better, to find some inspiration, to do a side project. And that happens whether you leave or not. But avoiding the issue altogether or pretending it doesn't exist, it's just not going to help. So make your choice, own it, accept it, move on. That's definitely fair. I think it's a good take, Michael. Um, my big takeaway for today, it's going to come from that first confession we had, my invisible agent. My takeaway is that we should all be our own agent. Mm. But I'm not so sure that it should actually be an invisible one. I, I think it is possible to be our own advocate, to, to lobby for what we think we're actually worth when we're negotiating for something, and to do so without being a jerk about it. I mean, I don't think we have to feel like we're, we're being mean by asking for what we believe that we're actually worth. Of course, in this confession, there's a whole nother issue at play, which is the fact that the person making the confession is a woman, and she feels like it may be playing a factor in her not getting taken as seriously. And 
She may be right. I, I don't know. But I think even still, we should try to be comfortable speaking up for what we feel that we're worth. The, the more that we do, the more less weird it would feel. And in fact, getting paid that extra amount that next time you're negotiating, uh, when you do ask for more and you get more, that can be really empowering. So yeah, while she definitely shouldn't be in the situation where she feels like she's not getting taken seriously, um, I think we should all try to coach ourselves to to be our own advocate and speak up for what we believe we're worth. Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. Really great points, Mike. Well, thank you, Michael. And, and really, uh, that's going to wrap things up for us. I mean, so, you know, of course, we are plugging along in this season of Rocketship.fm. We don't have uh, an end anytime in sight. So if you're loving what you're hearing, we hope you continue to join us. We have two more confessions next week. I'm sure there's going to be more juicy stuff coming your way. So we will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network. And if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.